the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on this week? Well, first of all, just a reminder to our listeners that we are now in the summer months and uh, the pandemic lockdown is winding down. And so we are going to back to our once a week uh, schedule. And also just to, we, we don't do this enough, but listening to other podcasts, they always start out by reminding you to subscribe. So at the very top of the show. So we're going to do we're going to do that. Uh, we ask you to go and and uh, subscribe to the podcast, rate it, recommend it to your friends if you like what you're hearing. So anyway, what's going on this week? What the hell is going on is the economy is starting to boom, Danny. We had a jobs report in May, 2.5 million jobs created, the best jobs report ever in the history of the United States. The uh, GDP is going to be growing in double digits over the summer. The economy is coming out of this this lockdown uh, pretty damn quick. Obviously, it's it's worthwhile for us to talk about the data, the nature of the economy, how it's going to impact people's lives. You know whether the next uh, unemployment rate is going to look going to look as good as the last one. We'll know that in a, in about a week. But I think one of the unfortunate outcomes of the pandemic is that we've settled into this partisan moment in which. The Democrats really want the suffering of the pandemic to continue yes. till the election because they think it'll help Biden's candidacy. And Donald Trump obviously is more than eager, hyper eager to get back to the pre-pandemic moment when things were looking great and he could have rallies in which uh, people, more than 6,500 people would show up. And, and, and this is not, that's not good for the country. It's not good for the economy. It's not good for people who, who hope to get back to work. That, I think, more than the details of the economy, that's one of the things that really worries I me. I think you hit on something important there about about the Democrats and Biden, because if you look at Biden's response to the day when the when the report came out, he was like, "No, don't celebrate. This is this is the you know we've still got millions of people unemployed and the economy is still in terrible shape and blah blah blah." And it's just like the American people. I mean, if you think what what have we gone through in this? I mean, just to put this in context. We have gone through the worst pandemic since 1918, the worst economic uh, devastation since the Great Depression, and now the worst social unrest since the 1960s, all in less than six months yeah. in this country. The American people are desperate for some good news, and they finally get some good news, and the Democrats' response is, don't celebrate. It's like, no, 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 no. celebrate. And, we and, should and, all and, be happy that people are doing better. And it's just, it makes me sad that there are people rooting against the economy. Look, I mean, there's no question there are. Look at what Paul Krugman, uh, the uh, much loathed columnist for the New York Times Nobel Prize winning. And uh, former Enron uh, advisor. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, a columnist for the, for the New York Times actually questioned the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers. And and I will say he got the absolute crap kicked out of him by Deserve. by not only by people like AEI scholars uh, who understand this and who actually have a lot of experience with the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but by Obama administration economists as well who yep. said this is complete garbage. So 
Yes, but I also want to reassure the Democrats, you guys, you don't need to root against the economy. Donald Trump will help you no matter what you do. So root for the American people. I mean, are you as optimistic about our recovery as others are? You know, we're, we're getting a lot of, you know, Second wave. Anthony Fauci was on uh, on in the news again this week. You know, second wave is coming. Everybody beware. Wear your masks. Wash your hands. Don't go to work. Uh, are you really uh, optimistic? I am, uh, and for a number of reasons. One is that look, the reality is is that before the pandemic hit, the fundamentals of the economy were outstanding. It was one of the best economies we've had we've had in in my lifetime, and so we didn't go into recession because of some economic structural problems. We went into recession because we chose to go into recession uh, for uh, to to deal with a public health crisis. And so now that we're we're lifting the the restrictions, people are the economy is going to is going in many ways snap back and grow grow quickly. Um, and also, I think that you know, and we'll, we've talked a little bit about how this this could fuel populism, but people are really disgusted with the experts in Washington who told them you have to lock down, you can't have any mobility. I understand why. I think we should have locked down when we did because we didn't know much about the virus. You know, we didn't know who it was going to impact the most and we didn't have the health capacity to deal with the surge in cases. But now we do. Uh, we've built all that up. We're going to have, I think, I think we're, gonna, we're on track to have 200,000 ventilators by the end of this year. I mean, we're going to have more, so many ventilators, we're going to be giving them away on street yeah, corners, we also, right? We also and, know that ventilators are probably not the best way to treat people true, who have but, COVID. But putting that aside, we have, we have hospital capacity. We've built hospitals. We've done everything. So we can handle a surge in cases. And Americans are looking and saying, there's millions of people marching, not social distancing, over racial injustice and, and, and defund the police and whatever, whatever the causes are like, I'm sorry, I'm going back to work. Right. Uh, and I don't think they're going to listen the next time people, the people you know, light their hair on fire and say, you're going to die if you don't stay in your home for three months. So one thing that was fascinating, editorial in the Wall Street Journal, I'll just read the, the lead sentence, which is, per capita COVID fatalities were 75% lower in states that didn't lock down. That's number one. Number two, even as the COVID numbers are going up, even as infections are increasing in places like Florida and Texas and elsewhere, the fatality rates are going down. We are on a downhill trend. And that has not changed, which only backs up what you said, which is that we know how to treat this. We know who needs to be careful, the elderly. We know who needs to be careful, people who have comorbidities. But everybody else can manage. And they're just not going to put up with this crap anymore. The reality is people have to live their lives. This this pandemic did enormous damage to. There are businesses that are never going to come back. There are people's livelihoods, you know, things that they spent their whole entire life building that are never going to be able to recover. And and so, uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't think people are going to go back to a, to a, to a full lockdown, even if we were told that we had to do it. Uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic that the economy is going to be coming back. And the reality is we need to give credit where credit is due. Oh, yeah. Right. It, no, well, well, no, I mean, come on. Don't, don't, give it, don't be grudging about it. If we have now a sustained economic growth for the next few months, listen, when all the public health experts were out there saying, we have to keep the lockdown, we have to keep the lockdown, who was saying, no, we got to get the economy moving again? Yeah, no, it was okay. Trump. 
And it was the Trump administration who managed this economic recovery, who when when the economy is bad, the president gets blamed. When the economy is recovering, the president gets credit. And I think there's a reason why your, your Democratic friends are rooting against the economy is because before the pandemic, they were terrified that Trump was going to get reelected because the economy was so good and they don't want to get there before November. I've already told you what I think about that. That is a sad state of affairs in American politics. So we've actually got somebody on today who you know, understands way more about <laughs> about labor markets and economics than, than Mark and I, notwithstanding our many pronouncements on the topic. Mike Strain, you guys have heard from him before. He's a colleague of ours at AEI. He's our director of economic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy. His latest book is one that has gotten really great reviews and continues to get a lot of interest called The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It. Really, we we talked about it with Mike, and we're really lucky that he was game to join us again today to talk about where things are headed with with the economy. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. That's great. Well, look, last time we had you on, we were talking about uh, what everyone was hoping for, the chances for a V-shaped recovery. Uh, We had Glenn Hubbard on a few weeks later who said it'd probably be more like a Nike swoosh. We're all terrified of the possibility of a hockey stick recovery, which would be the worst possible outcome. But then we had this May jobs report came out and we added 2.5 million jobs. And Donald Trump says this is better than a V. It's a rocket ship. Is he right? (laughs) Is he ever uh, right? I mean. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. It certainly was a surprising and very positive uh, a bit of news. I mean, I think, you know, my expectation was that the economy would hit bottom in April and that the labor market would take, you know, another another couple of months to hit bottom. So consumer spending and overall economic activity hits its low point in April and the labor market begins to recover in May or in June. Instead, it looks like what happened was that that the labor market hit bottom in the same month as the rest of the economy. And so the widespread expectation was that in the month of May, the unemployment rate would increase, we would continue to lose jobs. But instead, Mark, as you say, the economy added 2.5 million jobs, which is, you know, 10 times the number of jobs that the economy would add in a typical good month during the last expansion. And the unemployment rate fell. So I think it's very good news, but I also think that this this good news was going to happen, and 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 so the takeaway shouldn't be, oh, you know, the labor market recovery is so much stronger than anybody thought. Instead, the takeaway should be that the labor market began recovering earlier than people had thought, and that's important because it suggests that the lockdown orders really did have an effect, and when and when they lifted employers needed to call workers back to work and people went out and, and, and spent some money. So that that's, you know, one data point uh, for sure. But but it's a data point that uh, should inspire some some optimism. So that's right. I mean, that is one one data point. But a lot is resting in our minds on that jobs report and on the fact that the stock market really continues to recover. The Nasdaq has already gone above where it was before the crisis. And, you know, it's looking like a pretty solid upward train for the rest of the stock market. But um, is the next jobs report going to be as good? And aren't there other indicators that we need to look to to have a sense of whether we're a V or a swoosh or a hockey stick? 
Uh, yeah, there certainly are. Uh, so to answer your first question, yes, I think the next jobs report is going to is going to look that good. You know, I would expect the the next few jobs reports continue to look that good. And, and so that is good news. There are other pieces of good news. Um, we saw a massive increase in consumer spending in, uh, in, in the most recent data. That was all me, though. And I'm ratcheting back. <laughs> I just looked at my credit card bill and I was like, oh, my God, what were you doing in the month of May? For, for those of you who have never seen, seen Danny's wardrobe like I do every day, that is a not an exaggeration. <laughs> Danny, Danny, Danny is well dressed. There's no doubt. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> yeah, so, of course, consumer spending really, really tanked uh, as a consequence of the lockdown. And if you looked at if you looked at, uh, at, at retail sales and in, uh, basically in bars and restaurants in the month of April, they dropped by over 30 percent. But in the month of May, they increased by nearly 30% as well. So we had about a 30% about drop in March, followed by a you know, 33% drop or so in April, followed by a 30% increase in May. Another really interesting data point, you know, so that makes sense because who wants to go to a bar or who wants to go to a restaurant in the middle of a pandemic? Um, but another interesting data point is consumer spending on clothing. And here again, Danny may be, may be uh, uh, pulling up the rest of the economy. But in March... Sweatpants have really uh, gone uh, through the roof, I will tell you. <laughs> not, my, not in my house, but yes. So in March, consumer, uh, consumer spending on clothing dropped by about 40%. In April, consumer spending on clothing dropped by about 80%. Wow. But in May, consumer spending on clothing increased by about 180%. But Michael, that's so, that's a that's going to be a small bump because that's everybody who can't fit into their pre-pandemic clothes having to buy, <laughs> having to buy new pandemic post-pandemic clothes. It is it, I think I think a lot of people are experiencing that. <laughs> <laughs> what you're really saying is that the bottom really had no no tenacity. What I guess I don't get is is that lots and lots of businesses haven't come back. What accounts for these numbers? Yeah, so so what I'm saying is that it's interesting that people people just didn't spend money. <laughs> you know, you know, you wouldn't think that clothing sales would be would be that effective, right? You know, people can still shop online, people can still shop in clothing stores, but but people just people just cut their spending back uh, dramatically in March and April. But even spending on things like clothing that aren't really you know first order affected by a pandemic seem to have responded really quickly. Uh, you know, this is a consequence of a couple of things. So, you know, in a typical month, personal income, uh, the income that people that people get, increases by, you know, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0.5%. In the month of April, personal income increased by 10.5%. And that increase in income was driven by, uh, by the CARES Act, by Congress's uh, economic recovery program. Uh, by very generous unemployment insurance benefits, by checks to households, these provisions just shot personal income up through the roof. The personal savings rate hit 33%, which is which is remarkable. You know, typically it's seven percent or something like that. So, so a picture is emerging, right? So, Congress succeeded in plugging the income hole for households. You know, not for every household, certainly, but but in a macroeconomic sense. 
uh, Congress replaced that lost income. Uh, in a macroeconomic sense, households sat on a lot of it. And once the lockdown orders lifted, households started spending on things like bars and restaurants like you would expect, but also on things like clothing that may be, that may be less expected. At the same time, businesses brought employees, employees back to work earlier than, than had been widely believed that they would. Um, so this all points to a very strong summer for the U.S. economy. I, I see no real reason why you would think this trend would stop in July or August. Even with the so second very, wave of the virus? Well, so, so it depends. Uh, it depends on how, it depends on whether that materializes. So there's a lot of concern right now, obviously, about, you know, the number of states that have uh, transmission rates for the virus that are, that are uh, exponential. And, you know, if that continues, right, you know, if, if the summer heat doesn't knock the virus back or, or whatever, then we will we will see. And that is a risk. You know, one possibility, of course, is that, you know, people have people's risk tolerance for this has increased, that this really kind of came on the scene in February and March. Suddenly, people didn't know what to expect. People, you know, kind of uh, retreated inside their homes. But the people have over the past few months, people have grown more comfortable taking risks. Another important factor is that risk management practices, I think, are, are, are much better understood. You know, in, in February or March, you know, the idea of wearing masks or of washing your hands five times a day, not touching your face, you know, all this sort of, you know, carrying hand sanitizer and, and Clorox wipes around with you. You know, these were very foreign practices. Uh, you know, it may be that people are so much more comfortable with these sorts of simple things that they feel more comfortable shopping and, and, and dining out and doing things of that nature. So even if the virus surges again, it, our response to it may be different. Of course, that may, that may not be the case, right? And, and, and it may be that the virus isn't affected by the summer heat, that it really comes back very, very aggressively, and that we do this all over again. I mean, I think a, a double dip recession is still a very live possibility, uh, you know, probably not for the summer, but maybe for the fall. And I, I think we don't really know uh, we don't really know what, um, uh, you know, what path that's going to take. As you pointed out, the risk tolerance of the American people has changed, and also the uh, the lockdown tolerance of the American people has changed. I don't know that the American people, having gone through this once, are going to willingly go through it again, or, or whether there would be a resistance to a significant lockdown uh, if the virus came back in the fall. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I think I think it depends on on how strong it how strong it comes back. And, and it depends on people's people's reaction to it, you know. But I do think that that having gone through this, you know, the appetite for doing it again is going to be is going to be a lot less. I mean, I think I think when we when we entered into into this uh, this period of lockdown back in March, I don't think the economic costs of shutting the country down were really apparent to most people or or even to most of our elected leaders, to most of our governors and members of Congress. But now they are. And we see, you know, just how much damage shutting the economy down for two or two or three months can do. We also see, you know, how extraordinary the policy response needs to be. Um, you know, if you're going to do that, then you're committing the federal government to spending a few trillion dollars. And I think appetite to do that has decreased as well. So my guess is that we're not going to do this again. Um, but that does depend to a large degree on the virus. And if it comes back in the fall really, really aggressively, the appetite to, to do it again 
may change. So, Michael, you were extolling uh, what a good job Congress did and really that a lot of this recovery that we're experiencing right now is because of the actions Congress took. As you well know, uh, having studied uh, the Constitution, we have a tripartite system of government, which also includes the executive branch. How do you rate the uh, Trump administration's response economically? And doesn't really uh, Trump deserve credit for the fact that we've uh, rebounded. Talk about leading the witness. How do you rate them and don't they deserve credit? What do you mean? That's fair. <laughs> that's a fair question. Fair and balanced. I think it's, yeah. I think, I think it's both a fair question and, uh, and a leading question. Yes. Um, <laughs> many, many are. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. Judge you know. Danny, you're leading the witness. <laughs> I am judge and jury, Mark Tyson. <laughs> the witness will answer the question. <laughs> so the the administration obviously worked with with Congress uh, on the um, on the legislation, and, and and so of course they deserve credit for for uh, helping to shape it. You know, in our in our tripartite system of government, Congress has the primary authority to write the laws, and then the executive branch has has the authority to execute them. And I would give the administration relatively low marks on on its execution of some of these programs. The the CARES Act cost about $2.2 trillion or, or thereabouts, and $454 billion of that, so, you know, 20% to 25% of it, was a, a fund that the Treasury Department intended to use as capital to support Federal Reserve lending program to businesses and, and municipalities. The Trump administration is being extremely conservative with how that capital will be allowed to be used to the point that basically no lending is happening. And so that's, you know, 20, 25% of the CARES Act that is just kind of sitting there, not being used to support the economy because the Treasury Department, I think, is, again, not willing to, to, to do the things that are needed to, to get that money out, out to work for American businesses and the American people. Uh, the biggest and most important part of the CARES Act was the Paycheck Protection Program, which is a program that offers uh, what are essentially grants to small business uh, to support payroll and, and other expenses during the shutdown. That program, I think, has been successful, but its execution has been very rocky, and its execution has scared away participants and confused a whole lot of people. Uh, and as a consequence of that rocky execution, PPP funds didn't reach many of the most vulnerable and most needy businesses. And indeed, you know, at the moment, businesses are, are really skittish about participating in the program at all because they're just confused about how the Treasury Department is going to, to operate it going forward. Can you explain why the administration has been so conservative? Because we've heard, I mean, we really have heard a lot of complaints about their administration, not just of the Paycheck Protection Program, but also about the of the loans that, that were available for business, the lack of clarity, you know, the president getting mad that some of the loans up front went to corporations that have billions of dollars and aren't as in need as small businesses. You know, but what, to your mind, other than the usual government explanation of incompetence, uh, explains why they've administered this program so incompetently, so badly. So I don't know. I mean, it's a great question. You know, I, I think that they may be excessively concerned about the perception that government money is going to businesses that don't need it. 
and uh, which is a I fair concern, that, isn't it? Oh, I think I, th- I think it is a fair concern, but the alternative is not that money only goes to businesses that need it. You know, the the realistic alternative is that money doesn't get to to many businesses that need it, and so that's the trade off. Is you know, if, if you're if you're so conservative that you're setting up these programs in such a way that it's very difficult to get any money out the door, then you probably are protecting yourself against the the concern that you're that you're giving money to undeserving companies. But at the same time, you're opening yourself up to the concern that you know Congress appropriated all this money and 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 you're not using it to help all these struggling businesses. There are more struggling businesses out there that could use this money than there are you know the potential for undeserving borrowers. So I think they're just reading the balance of risks wrong. And that's, you know, that's going to be a problem. You know, again, we're going to see, I think, pretty rapid economic growth uh, over the summer. But, you know, after that kind of initial snapback period happens, you know, when workers that are temporarily laid off return to their former employer, when, you know, people, you know, uh, when the burst of enthusiasm for spending money kind of dies down, you know, then we're going to enter a second phase of the recovery where it's just harder for the economy to improve because improvement will no longer mean, you know, returning to the way things were in February. Instead, improvement will require changes in the economy. Some industries to shrink, some industries to expand, businesses to change the way they do business. So, you know, that's when uh, the rubber's going to hit the road for, for a lot of these programs. And if the Trump administration isn't doing all it, all it support business and workers, then that I think is a, is a much larger political risk than, than the risk of, you know, a few companies getting money that shouldn't have. How concerned are you about this sort of very, you know, anecdotal but very widespread problem that a lot of businesses are reporting, which is that people are making more on unemployment than they are? I, it's I, actually I think, not anecdotal, Danny. So. No, no, it, I mean, it's but, not. You're right. It's not anecdotal. But let me put it this way. I think everybody knows an employer. And I meant it from my perspective. Everybody knows an employer who's actually having trouble getting people to come back to work because and including a lot of small businesses, because people are making more by staying home than they would by going back to work. How how big a problem is that? Do you and think, just Mike? to just to yeah. give put the numbers out there to show it's not just anecdotal. University of Chicago uh, study saw that 60 to 70 percent of people on unemployment insurance are making more money than they did in their previous jobs. And for people at the bottom 20 percent, it's they're making double what they made in their previous jobs. Thoughts? Yeah, that's that's right. So typically unemployment insurance, you know, on average is you know kind of in the ballpark of three hundred dollars a week. And so that's, you know, roughly speaking, you know, fifteen thousand dollars a year. What Congress did in the CARES Act was it added $600 to all those payments. You know, to, to put that in annual terms, that's adding $30,000 a year on top of the $300, that, the $300 a week that people already got. So if you are unemployed, you know, the average unemployed worker is able to, to earn, you know, not able, not able to earn, but is able to receive, you know, something like $45,000 a year um, on unemployment benefits. Uh, that's, more than a lot of workers make. And, uh, you know, I think two thirds of workers being able to, to increase their income by staying unemployed is, you know, pretty close to, to the right number. So this is a big problem. This was not a big problem during the shutdown, right? During the shutdown, you know, people weren't going to go to work anyway. 
people weren't going to, you know, go out and try and find jobs anyway. And, you know, it was a, it's a poor use of taxpayer money. It was a policy mistake. You know, it shouldn't have happened. But the economic implications of it were not significant. Now that we're into the reopening phase, the economic implications of two-thirds of workers being able to, to have a higher income while unemployed than uh, in jobs is a significant problem, and it will keep the unemployment rate elevated. It will lead to workers choosing to be unemployed rather than choosing to be employed, and it will make the recovery from this recession longer and more painful. Uh, and so, you know, top of mind for, for Congress needs to be to, to wind that down. Uh, those benefits expire next month, at the end of next month. And so Congress has to proactively renew them or, you know, come to some sort of compromise where they're scaled back. But that's, that's going to be, that's going to be, or that should be at the top of Congress's agenda for, for next month. One of the uh, proposals to for how to fix that problem uh, was uh, Senator Portman has introduced legislation. And full disclosure, my wife is his legislative director, um, but uh, he's introduced legislation to do a uh, return to work bonus of four hundred and fifty dollars. Whereas if you where if you get off of your uh, unemployment and go back to work, that for a period of time you get a you get a four hundred fifty dollar bonus to return to work. What do you think of that idea? I think I think it's a good idea. You know, it's actually pretty similar to to an idea that I advocated. I think back in 2013, 2014, 2015, to help the economy recover from the Great Recession. You know, it it changes the incentive. The incentive for workers are not to get jobs, not to remain unemployed, and so that's that's pushing it in the right direction. It's definitely an improvement over the status quo of $600 a week and in additional uh, in additional uh, UI payments if you're not working. It makes me a little concerned. For two reasons, you know, one reason is that is this really equitable, right? Uh, you know, so people who people who didn't lose their jobs or who went back to work really quickly, you know, would not be eligible for this for this payment, and 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 you know, it doesn't make sense to you know offer a bonus to workers who stayed unemployed for longer, you know, and 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 then the second concern I have is you know kind of does this further does this change the nature of the unemployment insurance system in a way that's going to that's going to become that's going to become problematic uh you know the, the the point of unemployment insurance is that is that it's insurance against involuntary unemployment people pay into the system using payroll taxes when they're not unemployed they don't get the money anymore you know you know would this end up being a temporary expansion under extraordinary circumstances or would you know this kind of you know creep into more of a permanent you know uh, earning subsidy type program if the latter, then it may make more sense to just expand earning subsidies uh, because that way you could target them, right? So what you could do instead is you could phase out the unemployment benefits, not offer a reemployment bonus as part of the UI system, but instead just offer workers a, a, a tax credit to subsidize their earnings. It would only go to working households, and it should incentivize employment in the same way that a, that a reemployment bonus would. The advantage is that you could target that on low-income households uh, who, who really, I think, need it, need it the most. Uh, but certainly, it, it would be an improvement over the status quo. So Pam is wrong. 
<laughs> that's all he was really asking you was is Pam right or is Pam wrong? Uh, no, that no that what you said makes a lot of sense. Let me let me ask you really quickly, and we need to wrap. I know your time is precious, but you you made a statement before the Senate Committee on Small Business at the beginning of June that was interesting. You know, you, you noted that research shows that fifty percent of small businesses have less than fifteen days of cash liquidity, and that while manufacturing firms may have the sort of the buffer that they need to get through this. Service sector losses are never going to be made up. But isn't America mostly a service economy? In other words, aren't there things that are that are never going to come back? We've focused on individuals, on employment, but aren't there just things that we're never going to see anymore after this uh, pandemic? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, my my sense you know, is that life will look a lot more normal than than, than a lot of people think, right? I, I think I think there will be less permanent change as a consequence of this than many people think. The world will look the way it did in February to a large degree. You know, I don't think we're going to see you know half of workers working from home in perpetuity. I don't think we're going to see the end of business travel. You know, I I I, I don't think we're going to see things of this nature. But I do think that some things will look different. You know, it's hard to imagine that movie theaters will be able to to recover from this. You know, they were already struggling long before the pandemic, and and you know, it just it seems like you know, for people who are who are kids today, the idea that you would you know go to a building at a specific time to watch a movie, <laughs> you know, will seem as foreign to to kids today as the idea that you would you know, rush home at 7 p.m. to sit in front of the TV to watch a show at a certain time. You know, my guess is that there will be less business travel uh, than there was before. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, kind of scratch their heads at the idea of carving two days out of their life and flying uh, across the country for one one-hour meeting, you know, so so that sort of thing may may diminish in, in, in frequency. So there will be some changes. And that is going to be a painful adjustment process, right? So think about the recovery from this in two phases. Phase one is the snapback, right? Workers who are temporarily unemployed go back to their previous employer. You know, people, you know, go back to barbershops, they go back to restaurants, they go back to doing the things that they used to do. That will happen rapidly. You know, typically the unemployment rate will drop, you know, uh, around 1% per year following a recession. We're going to see the unemployment rate drop by around 1% per month for the next few months. Uh, you know, typically a great jobs number during a during the recovery from a recession, you know, say 200,000 jobs in a month. We're going to see 2 million jobs a month. Uh, you know, there was a big debate over whether or not the economy could grow at 3% or 4% uh, on an annualized basis. Um, we're going to see GDP growing this summer at 20% or 30%. We're going to see GDP growing this fall at 10% or 12%. So we're going to have a rapid and uh, you know really aggressive recovery. And then that period is going to end. And when that period ends, you know, say at the end of calendar year 2020, the economy is still going to be in terrible shape. And we're going to enter the second phase of the recovery which is the phase where some industries need to shrink and other industries need to expand. Businesses need to change the way that they're doing business. Workers who have permanently lost their job as opposed to workers who have temporarily lost their job 
will have to find new jobs at new companies, maybe in new industries or in new occupations. And that phase of the recovery is going to take years, not months. So, you know, are we going to have a V? You know, yeah, we'll have a, we'll, we'll have a V over the summer and probably into the fall. But then we're going to not have a V anymore. And we're going to have a, a much slower, more painful process. Well, Michael, this is great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. Yeah, thank you. Always fun. So Mike says we're going to have a two-stage recovery, which is one stage we're going to rocket back up to uh, out of the V, and then we're going to plateau because there's all sorts of structural issues with the economy that the pandemic has unleashed. But, I mean, what that means is we're going to get back to where we were, which was, you know, struggling to get more than 2% growth, which is great. I mean, because where we were wasn't bad. There are going to be after effects. You know, it's sort of like, you know, we've learned that we were talking about this off air, but we've learned that ventilators are actually not the greatest thing for COVID patients. But a lot of businesses are like COVID patients who are on ventilators. You know, they they got this economic support that saved them, probably prevented their lives. But the recovery for some of these businesses is going to be long and arduous and not instantaneous. Yeah, no, and you're right. It is accurate. One of the things that worries me going forward um, and I wanted to ask Mike about it, but we just didn't have the, the bandwidth or the time. Is this immigration order yeah. that Donald Trump made? You know, not you know on the margins, the au pairs that can't come here. Uh, all right, whatever. But the fact that he's not allowing any any more H one Bs. What that means is that uh, temporary. Well, but through the end of the year. And that's going to impact recovery for, for, for people who need to hire. It's going to impact people's ability to to execute on their business plans. It's, you know, we are a country of immigrants. And to be a country of immigrants, to continue to grow, to continue to innovate, we need to actually have immigrants. And I worry about this lockdown. And one of the things I worry about if Donald Trump is reelected is that the, the Stephen Millers of his administration who hate immigrants and who hate immigration are going to prevail and we are going to have our, our doors closed. That's not going to be good for the economy. And that is going to stall phase two even worse. So uh, let me stay at the outset before I answer your question that I am pro-immigration. I am pro-legal immigration. I think we should I think we should not only allow continue to allow legal immigration, but expand it dramatically because before the pandemic hit, the biggest problem that American businesses had is they couldn't find workers. Right. They were they were struggling to find workers. Every business survey showed that we can't find workers. So if you really wanted to go from that two two percent growth to like four percent GDP growth, you need a lot of immigrants. Also because uh, the American people are our replacement. We're not even at replacement rate in terms of fertility, right. and so we're not growing them at home. So we got to import them from outside. Right. So all that true. Yes. Um, and will be true at the in the second term of the Trump administration once the economy recovers. However, should there be one? However, when it happens, uh, the however, when you've got 40 million Americans who are out of work, uh, who filed for unemployment, and we're trying to get Americans back back to work, I don't necessarily see a problem with prioritizing getting Americans back to work before you uh, allow people to come in from the outside. Maybe for a month or two, but not for the next six months. Okay. Well, you know what? It's something that we can quibble over the period of time, but I think it's completely fair to have a period of time where we prioritize jobs for Americans. Because I'll tell you, putting aside whether that's right or wrong, it is politically unsustainable to be arguing, if you're an elected official, to argue that it's a bad thing to prioritize Americans getting unemployment. I hope the Democrats make that an issue because they will lose. 
We shall see. A lot more. A lot more to talk about. A lot more to discuss. Don't hesitate to send us your thoughts. Don't hesitate to share suggestions. And don't forget to tell everybody you know and, and people you don't know as well. I am wrong. <laughs> why Mark is wrong. <laughs> why Mark is wrong. But also what I was going to say, Mark, which is subscribe, review the podcast, uh, tell us what we can do better, and, uh, and take good care of yourselves. We'll see you next week. Take care. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.